This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Going to sit down and record a solo podcast here. I just want to thank a couple sponsors and we'll get right into it. So I want to thank Eberly Stock. Been using Eberly Stock for the last few years and they make a super durable pack that packs the weight right. They have different models for all your different preferences. I really like using the Kite Day Pack. Uh, also this year I'm trying out the Kite 4800. A lot of the guys around the office like the mainframe with the Vapor Series Pack, which is a minimalist design but still will pack out the weight right. You can get it with a 2500, 5000, or 7500 cubic bag in it. I also like the Destroyer Pack. I'll use that on big expedition trips. And I like how it sits tight to my back and sits fairly tall, which keeps the weight right. But I can still get a bunch of cubic inches in there for a big trip. So uh, if you're in the market for a new pack, make sure to check those guys out over at EberlyStock.com. I also want to thank Cutter Stabilizers. Uh, my buddy Earl came up with this design and pretty much created this company from scratch, but he's super thorough on, on every different uh, piece and part of these stabilizers to make sure it's going to hold up to the abuse that we throw on them. So he's really worked hard on his connections. And what these are, it's a carbon fiber stabilizer. And so it puts more of the weight out front. It's a slim design, so it doesn't blow around in the wind, very aerodynamic. And uh, I love using a sidebar. It just really helps with the hold of my bow and also the reaction of it. So I'm using a 15-inch out front, a 12-inch out back. The cutter also came out with a sidebar uh, bracket, so you can get that as well. And then you can change the weights by one ounce either on the front or back. So I'm using 6 ounces out front, 10 ounces in the back. Like I say, that 15 out front, 12 in the back, and the thing just holds like money and shoots really well for me. So if you're in the market for some new stabilizers, make sure to check them out over at Cutter Stabilizer. I also want to thank OnX. OnX changes the way that I scout and hunt. I love that I can color coat uh, my, my different waypoints so I can really build a good hunt map for this coming season. So I'm spending a bunch of time on here now as I'm scouting different places and access points, scouting different roads. Uh, you have um, the ability to save maps. So if you save maps before you go on your hunt and you don't have reception, your map will still you, uh, work. And also all your waypoints and your GPS will still work. Uh, I also like that I can make tracks so I can uh, record my mileage for the day, my elevation profile, uh, things of that nature. And then I can also mark trails, like if I need to go through a little bridge of public land to access more public land, I can use that to see private and public and where that goes, mark that track. I can also do it in dangerous steep terrain so that I make sure in the dark I come back the exact same track. So, um Always a bunch of uses for this Onyx. It's absolutely changed the way that I hunt and scout. Over at Eastman's, uh, make sure to check out that new podcast. This week I'm releasing 
podcast that I did with Ike on Ike's podcast, so you can check that out. And then me and Dan Picard have been doing the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. We're seven episodes in. I'll probably do the same thing where I release an episode to you guys on this feed as well. But if you want to check it out, just some great episodes, great content. The last one, number seven, being clutch. Me and Dan both talk about our biggest bulls and what we did right and what we did wrong and kind of our learning curve. It's just a great episode. So you've got to search it on a different feed. Search it on Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a Bow Hunter. And um, yeah, with that, make sure to check out everything we do. We've got new Beyond the Grid. So just search Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube and we'll pull up our new Beyond the Grid episode. So we're releasing a new one every week right now. So just some great new episodes from hunts last year. And um, with that, let's get into this podcast. All right. So I want to sit down, record a podcast and kind of... I've given a couple talks at these Western hunting summits that have went really well. And um, so it's it's given these guys uh, the information that's helped make me successful. And I just want to extend, you know, the same talk to you guys that um, listen to my podcast and support me. And so uh, try to get on here and give kind of the the rough talk that I gave on spot and stalking elk. So um Elk, uh, as you guys know, I like to spot and stalk them. I leave my calls in the truck, but that's not to say that calling isn't effective. Uh, calling is probably the most effective method in killing elk. Uh, so, you know, it's knowing the right sounds, but a big part of calling is really dialing into your elk hunting instincts. And so, um, you know, it's really thinking about where you're calling and it's more about where the call comes from than the call itself. It's like getting to the bedding timber before these elk or coming in on these elk at the same elevation as where they're bedded, where you can call them over, or beating them to a saddle or the meadow that they're going to be feeding that evening. And, and basically why I'm telling you guys this is you can take all this information that I'm going to talk about today and apply it into your own hunting. And that's, that's what this is. There's so much information out there from so many different people that if you can just take one thing from this talk or one thing from somebody's playbook and be able to implement it into your own hunting, building your own style, then it's a win. And so you can take a lot of this stuff that I'm going to talk about, about elk hunting, and use it in your calling setups. So it doesn't mean that you have to spot and stalk elk like I do or uh, that you have to call every elk like uh, uh, you know Cody Wilson, a guest that I have coming up, uh, does. Uh, but it's like if you can take one thing from each of us, apply it into your own hunting, and, and further your learning curve, you just stand a better chance to punching your tag. So, you know, elk hunting is extremely difficult. Like I know in Montana here for to uh, arrow a bull during the archery season, success rates run at about 6%. So that's like killing a bull once every 20 years. Or, uh, you know, you get 20 people in a room and one of those guys is going to be successful on elk. But you're able to beat the odds and be consistently successful uh, by furthering your learning curve. So you guys always hear me talk about there's so many facets that go into bow hunting, like all these different skill sets. And you have to take a look and work on each one of these skill sets. So 
you know, you have physical fitness, you have uh, mental toughness, you have your shooting, being able to execute on animals, you have your stalking skills, glassing skills, your ability to e-scout, your ability to to real scout, like all these skills that, that go into being successful. And if you work on all these different skill sets, you could you become a pretty complete bow hunter and then you know you can expect to show up to this trailhead and be undeniable that you can expect success like you know I don't run quite a hundred percent on my hunts but um about as close as a guy can come and I hunt a lot of easy to draw units and general tags and especially for elk like there's been a year or two that I haven't filled out in the last 25 but there hasn't been many Um, so, you know, I can run 95% on my hunts and not that, you know, I'll do that every year is like I set my goals higher and higher for bigger bulls. And, you know, eventually I run into a tough season or a tough year, but really through my work, um, work on my skill sets, like I'm able to show up and expect success on these elk. So this all like starts and ends with your mind. It's just deciding that you want to be a good elk hunter and, you know, it's important to realize we're all in 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 different different places in our elk hunting journey. Like it's not fair to compare yourself to me that's been, you know, have dedicated my life to it the last twenty five years to bow hunting these elk. Like you may be in a different place in your journey, you know. But you you set your goals to reasonable goals and I always think you have to work up the trophy rungs of the ladder. So, you know, you should kill a cow before you kill a bull and you should kill Uh, you know, branch antler bull before you kill a six point. And sometimes, you know, you're out hunting just for a legal bull or branch antler bull and you run into a giant six point and put an arrow in them. Like, that's great. You want to target these bulls as you run into them, but you just don't want to set your standards too high or uh, set yourself up for for failure. You want to set yourself up for success and you know, if you set your goals on a 350 plus bull, like a bull that you've killed with a rifle and set that for your bow goal, not to say that you can't do that, but you're going to have a tough time and you're going to get very few opportunities at 350 bulls, like less opportunities than you would get at 320s or 300s or legal bulls. So you're going to have fewer opportunities and then you just haven't worked to be clutching those moments when you're in close or in bow range or you just need practice with your execution, practice with your stalking or your calling setups to gain confidence, to figure out your method of operation. So when you do run into an elk, it's like, okay, so I'm going to put this elk to bed and I'm going to stalk him in his, uh, when he comes out in the evening in this meadow, like I have a plan when I see a bull of how I'm going to hunt him and how I'm going to try to kill him. And I've killed enough bulls to know that I can execute under that, um, fog of adrenaline and to know that, you know, I can be clutch on my stock. And I've learned that through successful stocks and also failures. Like I, I learn a lot from my failures as well. Um, but, but, you know, I've gained the confidence where I can set my standards pretty high and know that I can get enough opportunities to have a reasonable chance at filling my tag on a big mature six point. So I, I just think it's important to uh, get success on on elk and to put perfect arrows in them and then to build your confidence and then set your goal a little bit higher and a little bit higher from there and and um, work your way up the trophy rungs of the ladder. So uh, it all starts and begins with your mind. It's, um, our mind is our most, most powerful tool, like our ability to 
set goals and our ability to um, be disciplined and make ourselves get workouts or make ourselves uh, hunt day in, day out, make ourselves grind for a bowl. Like, you know, it's just deciding you want to be a good elk hunter, but then your decisions have to reflect your long-term goals. So, you know, if your goal is to be a dynamite elk hunter, like you're not going to do it if you're overweight and out of shape. And so that's like something that, you need to work on is physical fitness. And through this physical fitness, this is really how I build my mental toughness. Like, um, I get my mental toughness from my discipline of making myself run day in, day out, like that discipline. Um, I get my mental toughness from going on tough runs and having to put one foot in front of the other, make myself do it, make myself finish, even when I get tired or running back to back days. And so I can work on my mental toughness, which mental toughness is slippery. Like, um, you know, we all want it and you have to continue to work on it and continue to flex that muscle to keep your mental toughness. Uh, you know, it's like humans by nature, it's like easy to, to take the, take the easy way out or you know it's like humans are lazy by nature and you have to fight that urge all the time and that's in training and in hunting like it it's easy to you know figure out you know or figure that you're not going to see any elk and not go as hard as you're supposed to and so it's like really setting your mind to this end goal of being a good elk hunter being at your best during bow season and you enjoy it more that way too so I get a lot of mental toughness from my training I also get it from tough hunts from grinding day after day or long seasons and I've had some tough seasons for elk like there's some elk seasons where I'll have 20 days into killing a bull and you know our our season, um, you know, we're fortunate here in Montana, we get about a six week season. So I can do that even taking a week or taking long weekends, I can fit that many days in you take six weekends times three days, you know, is 18 days in itself. But yeah, like I have to be able to grind on these hunts. And so, you know, I can draw from previous experiences of uh, grinding on these hunts and coming out successful with a nice six point. And um, so I, I use that. And I also, you know, I gain mental toughness in other facets of my life too. Like we all go through tough times and making it through those tough times with a good mindset and in problems, like really difficult challenges aren't solved in a day or a week or a month. Like they're long-term, like you have to continue to work hard to get yourself out of a hole or to finish up a project or, uh, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, I flex that muscle throughout my life. Um, you know, and it's, how you do one thing is how you do everything. So, you know, to be a good bow hunter is one thing in my life, but I'm also working on all the facets of my life. So, you know, it's to be a good bow hunter. And then, you know, for so many years, it's been to be a big, a good builder and, and to do what I say I do and deliver a good home. And, and, you know, like I, I work on that tirelessly and to be a good husband and really work on my relationship and spending quality time with my wife and, you know, being a good father and trying to really mentor these kids into good human beings. Like I take pride in all those things. And, you know, a lot of it's through the lessons I've learned in bow hunting. You know, I'm able to reflect up there and look at my life and see how I can improve. And, you know, it's like a, it, it all it all affects the hunt in the end. It's it's like there's so many tangibles that go into these hunts. So we're talking about all the skill sets. Like what about the, the intangibles that you don't think about, like work, stress, and pressure? Like I'd say my biggest challenge with bow hunting 
is is just the work challenges that I have is it's a very stressful job and you know like I talked to you guys about making a change and I'm still working construction we're trying to finish the projects we're on and I'm trying to pass on a a good company to uh, my partner and dad that that he can run and run a small crew and and still see success and support the families that have worked so hard for me so um, you know, and also the clients that I promise projects to. So just trying to wrap up these jobs and um, hand over a good business. But yeah, I still got a ways in front of me here before it's all said and done. So, uh, you know, I'm still working at construction and still working hard. And right now we're shorthanded, so I'm having to put a lot of effort into it. But my whole point with this is that, like, there's intangibles that go into being successful on a hunt. And it's, you know, if I have the time to go chase these bulls around, like uh, I can kill a really good bull. Uh, if I have a like presence of mind, like being present is so difficult in life. We're constantly thinking about the future, the past. To really be present and take in the experience when I'm elk hunting is so important to me. And 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 to be present. Like, you know, I have to have everything taken care of at work. So leading up to season, I'll work really hard to make sure all my responsibilities are taken care of. And then I'm real upfront with my clients, like the same way I am with my wife, where I'm like, you know, I hunt a bunch during September. I'll have a project manager that's in charge of your project. And, you know, you'll be able to reach out to me if you have any issues or problems. You know, you can leave me a message and I'll return it back. But, you know, I'm going to be gone in September and I'll have all everything ordered for your project and subs lined up. And I'll be checking in on it. But, you know, you will have a project manager that's in charge of your project that you can reach out to for any of your questions or concerns or anything like that. So really setting myself up for hunting season. And, you know, for you young guys, like, you know, entrepreneurship is such a great way to go. Like, like all of this. I mean, for me to be the best bow hunter I can be, it's really structuring my life to to be able to enjoy these experiences that I love, like be able to spend time in the woods chasing my passion for elk and mule deer, but it's really setting up my life that way. And so, you know, with the job, you know, you're really working for that vacation time, but the entrepreneurship of being able to have your own business and set your own schedule and set your own hours and be able to schedule your time for hunting season is so advantageous. And really, you know, it's just a applying yourself to something. It's like applying yourself to a skill, like whether that's getting a job for me, it was carpentry, but could have been electrical or plumbing or, you know, who knows. But but for me, carpentry, really trying to be as good a carpenter as I can be and really trying to shape my skills. So really learning a craft, like um, really applying myself to that craft to be as good as I can be. Um, and, and then, you know, eventually I have the skills to be able to start my own business. And, you know, you have to, you know, you have to be able to be social and, you know, we live in a small community and so reputation is huge, but just being able to talk to guys and drum up work. And for a lot of years I was doing sub work where a contractor would get a house, but I had a couple guys put together or a crew and I would do all the work and help build their name and eventually got to a place where I built enough reputation and a good enough name where I was able to get, you know, good houses and good work. So, like whatever it is in in life like you know if you want to be good at bow hunting you also have to have the other stuff taken care of like uh, your job and a um whether it's paid vacation time or vacation time or even if you're a weekend warrior like I was a weekend warrior for years I still am like a lot of times in season like last year 
uh, during a lot of it. I was a weekend warrior and I would have to work during the week just due to responsibilities and things. And, you know, you can be good in a short amount of time, but you just got to be able to grind. So if you're hunting weekends, you know, you're taking off Friday after work and driving throughout the night and, you know, driving to the hunts may be the most dangerous thing we do. So make sure if you're tired, like you pull over and catch a quick nap. But I drove so much dark and hiked into so many places in the dark and then would stay late till Sunday evening, hunt Sunday night, and then drive home in the dark to be home for Monday for work. So like where there's a will, there's a way. So, you know, it's really taking care of all these intangibles as well. But it all starts with your mind. It's like if you if you love it and truly want to be good at it and you embrace the entire process of improving and hunting and and uh, you really structure your life to give yourself time to go do what you enjoy to do, you can be a great elk hunter. You know, and so it's just deciding in your mind that you're going to work on all these different skill sets and become the best you can be. I mean, the other thing that really plays into these skill sets is uh, – uh, your instincts. And, you know, I've talked about it a lot on the podcast just because it's so dang important, you know, to have these these instincts guide you to make these decisions, whether you walk left or, or walk right or chase this bull or go into this drainage or even on the stock when to, when to hold still and when to move. Like your instincts just guide you with all this stuff, you know. Um, and so these instincts, you know, to develop these instincts, it's like experience is the best teacher. And so just like I said at the beginning of this talk, you can learn something from everybody and you can take information from people and apply it to your own hunting. You can cut the learning curve uh, by paying attention to all this information that's out there, obtaining this information and applying it to your own hunting. But it all comes back to gaining your own experience. Like you have to take this information and then you have to get in the field and try it out. You got to go make mistakes and um, learn from them. You know, like the only reason I'm any good at bow hunting is I've made every mistake out there. I've made every mistake on a stock, every mistake on a shot, plays like, a, you know, I've messed up a bunch and on some great bowls, on some great bucks that I would have loved to have. But, you know, I learn from it. I improve and I get better. And I don't dwell on them or think about like, you know, if I make a mistake, it's like really analyze it, drop my ego. Like if they winded me, they winded me. Or if I move too quick, I move too quick, like really be able to look at it and see what I did wrong and what I could do better next time. And then try to uh, log it in the database and then use it the next time I'm faced with an opportunity. You know, those are built into my instincts of that, that issue I had when I stalked during a bad wind. Like I had this, um, you know, sometimes I'm a little hard-headed and it takes me a longer to learn these these lessons, but I had this basin that I would hunt. And um, this basin, you know, is on the lee wind side, but there was always bulls going nuts down in this basin. And I would hear these bulls and eventually I'd go down there and chase them and I'd try to get a decent wind, but I'd go down there and I'd get winded every time. Like, you know, went down there once, got winded, that's fine. Went down there second time, got winded. It's like, geez, another year later, two years later, dive down there and again and get busted a third time. Like, the, it sits on the lee wind side, and I'm going to talk about wind here in a minute, but the lee wind side, the the wind just swirls over there. Like, it, 
acts like a washing machine over the top as it rolls into country and circles around. And, and more animals bust you by the wind than anything else. More stocks are blown up. More calling scenarios are blown up by the wind. And so it, it's gaining this higher understanding of the wind, higher understanding of the thermals and the directionals and how they move through the mountains and how they, uh, you know, how they're affected in these mountains. So, you know, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll get into the winds. We'll talk about that. But basically, I would, got winded three times going into this, this basin on the lee wind side. So instead, on the fourth time of going in, uh, my instincts guided me and taught me that I can't dive in there. I've got to sit on the outskirts and then try to catch one of these bowls as he comes up and out or as he changes position. And so I left the party down in this bowl, and they're bugling like crazy. And all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, like mid-morning, 10 o'clock, here comes this bull squirting out of that basin, and he comes up and jumps on the ridge with his cows, and now he's on the south side with a dominant south wind that's blowing. So, you know, now I've got a steady wind, and I jumped in behind this bull, and I was able to trail him close to where his bed, and he was behind all the cows and kind of fed and and, uh, lingered around before he jumped in the timber. I was able to catch up to this bull, put a perfect arrow into him, and uh, he was a great big dark horn mountain six-point, and kill him out of this drainage, all from that, you know, from not diving in that basin and blowing up those elk, from learning my lesson, from, like, evolving and becoming a better elk hunter, like, I was able to kill one of my best bulls to date. So, you know, it really is like uh, honing these instincts, getting this experience. And this experience, like, you know, you you can you can really transpose this experience or this uh, skill set or these instincts from species to species. Like I always say, hunting different species in different habitats improves your skill sets in different ways. So like if I hunt coos deer down in the desert, it makes me way better at glassing and glassing off a tripod and master vantage points. It makes me way better at stalking because these crafty deer are really gray and blend in. So you have to glass and move slow as you move in on the stalk and relocate them. So it really improves my skill sets in those ways. When I go to Hawaii, like I leave here in a few days and going to go hunt Hawaii, it really makes me better at still hunting and still hunting the thicks at where these axes are because you know a lot of times it's not set up with a master vantage point and so I have to hunt my way through country and move painfully slow through country and glass the timber in front of me well that makes me better at still hunting and not just for still hunting elk but also for like stocking up on these elk like those same skills apply and so it doesn't need to just be elk experience to be a good bow hunter like you can go hunt antelope or white-tailed does are a perfect example and they'll give you five tags in my home state for cheap even if you're a non-resident but getting this this stalking experience and playing the game on these animals it, it just transposes to your elk hunting skill set so you know, it's like antelope is a perfect example where antelope, you can get three to five stalks a day in good country. That's a lot of stalking experience. That makes you way better at stalking. You know, elk where you may only get three to five stalks a year, uh, not a day, like then you're better at stalking. So when you do get those stalks on elk, you're more apt to make it happen on a bull elk when you get a stalk on them, you know. So like make sure that you're getting this experience whichever way you can and in in doing other hunts and I really like hunting high population hunts that makes me better and so you know really try to um, add in an antelope hunt or mule deer or white-tailed doe or 
uh, Axis, if you have that opportunity, like there's some great hunts out there that'll make you a better elk hunter. And so, you know, spot and stalking these bulls, I started doing it for a couple different reasons. So as I worked my way up the trophy rungs of the elk ladder, you know, I used to call a bunch. But what I started noticing is, is I was calling in a lot of satellite bulls. So those herd bulls are a lot tougher to call in. And it's like you almost had to catch those herd bulls in the, the right mood to be called in. And and so, you know, what I found is, is that I was calling in a lot of the satellites, but I wanted to start targeting the herd bulls. And these herd bulls, like, they may only be in the right mood to be called in once a season or a couple times a season when they're all fired up. And another thing I noticed is a lot of times I'd interact with these bulls, but these bulls were just grabbing their cows and going away from me. So they bugle at me and respond, but I was just chasing them out of country. And and so, you know, to start targeting these herd bulls, I also found like when bulls would come in, they really come in on pins and needles to a call. So a lot of times I wasn't getting the right angle or even getting a shot because calling for myself you know, having to call these bulls to my position, they'd come in on pins and needles looking for what made that call. Now, you can use land features in front of you. There's definitely some ways you can get around that. But I just noticed, like, my one opportunity, they were on such pins and needles that I wouldn't get the shot every time anyways. And so as I started to target these herd bulls with cows, I hunt, like, a lot of high-pressure areas. And so, you know, these bulls that are seven, eight, nine years old, they've been called at. They know what a call is. They know humans are hunting them. And they just weren't elk being elk anymore. Like when I find elk and I haven't called at them, I keep the element a surprise and I don't give away my position. And so, you know, I'm able to to hunt these elk without them knowing I'm hunting them. And, and it, it's just been such a, a major, major asset. And then I've been able to really focus on these herd bulls and kill really nice six point plus bulls every single year. And so what I'm looking for when I'm stalking bulls is... I like to hunt elk on their feet. So I will stalk a bedded bull if I know exactly where he's bedded, like I see him bed and I can see the cows around him. Otherwise, if they're just bedding in thick timber, it begins, it starts to be a low percentage play for me. So to go into that dark timber after him, they're all bedded, there's multiple cows, their heads are up and they're just looking for danger. And so what ends up happening is, is I end up spooking them or busting them and never getting an opportunity. So the, this whole game is to keep the element a surprise and the key to killing elk is like being into elk so it's it's like the longer you can be into them and play the game the more chance you have that this bull is going to make a mistake and so like when I'm stalking bulls I'm really looking for them to be on their feet and I'd love to have them in their feeding feature like in their feeding feature is huge because they're usually on an opening or the edge of the opening and I can keep tabs on their their mood and behavior and mannerisms. I can see if they're focused on feeding or if their heads are up looking for danger and then I can kind of read if I can keep moving or if I have to freeze or have to stay still and so I, I really like finding them in their feeding feature uh, is my preferred method and um, the evenings are great for that as if you can chase them in the morning and you put them in bed in the thick timber I won't go chase them and then I know where elk are uh, in the the evening and they're going to be coming out into that meadow grass feeding and when they come out to that meadow grass I've also got like this downhill thermal uh, that I can count on where I can close in and then try to uh, get close enough to make a shot. So 
like um a, a big key to killing elk is like being into elk so like locating elk is one of your biggest challenges and elk are you know they're nomadic by nature as they work through a mountain range and they use a network of feeding and bedding features and you know you can be in the best elk spot in the world and there can be no elk in there because they were there a week ago or they'll be there in a week so they're always moving and so I don't do good at waiting for elk to show up I do good at like going to find elk and so uh, I cover a lot of country I'm nomadic like these elk uh, if I'm if I'm day hunting from my truck, then I'm throwing my bag in in every single night, so I don't have to come back to a base camp. Uh, if I'm hunting elk in the mountains, uh, you know, there's times where I'll have a base camp set up, but a lot of times I like to have uh, be mobile, and so like I may have a small lightweight tent, and I may set that up and hunt that spot for a day or two, and then I'm grabbing my tent and I'm keeping moving. Or I'll just travel with my camp on my back and I can go super lightweight for a two, three day assault and keep myself into elk by moving and then just sleeping wherever I end up. Uh, I like to cover country and so uh, basically you got to be at the right places at the right time. Like you can also hike into a drainage that's full of elk and you hike in there at the middle of the day and you don't hear a bugle, don't see a bull, don't think there's an elk in there. Like you got to be there at first light and so you got to hike in the dark or you got to sleep up there and it, it's so it sounds so elementary but it's like again this comes back to the discipline of doing the right things day in day out and so sitting on your vantage point till dark or getting there before light and then being on that vantage point like sometimes you only have the first 10 minutes to to catch an elk out in an opening and then they shut up and they're in the dark timber or um, you know whatever the case is so make sure you're to the right places at the right time I will use a master vantage point for elk uh, where I sit on a master vantage point at first light but I also like running a mobile vantage point where I'm just diving into country hunting I uh, like taking ridge lines where I can see across the drainage or down off either side. Uh, you know, I'll also I'll hike some bottoms in that. But I, I do like a ridge line that gives me a good view. And then I'm glassing every opening every time I get a chance. Um, you know, so I'll hike up these drainages or these ridge lines and put on miles at the right time using this mobile vantage point. Uh, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to listen for bugles. So uh, elk rut the hardest at night. So your best chance to catch them is in the evening or in the morning when they're active and in those feeding features and bugling. Your other opportunity to locate elk is in the dark. So, you know, definitely not hunting them in the dark or anything like that, but I'm listening to places in the dark. So you can drive roads and get out and listen to drainages. You can go hike ridgelines and, and get yourself above, like, basins to listen to and listen for bugles. Again, the key to killing elk is being into elk. So if you can hear a bugle, then you got a bull to go hunt in the morning. And so I use this tactic quite a bit. I'll also uh, I'll strategically camp in a spot that I'm not hunting, so... I'll hunt a place in the morning, hunt a different place in the evening or maybe the same place. And then at night, I'm sleeping above a drainage. And above that drainage, I'm listening for elk in that drainage. So at night while I'm sleeping, I'm positioned in the right place where if I hear a bull bugle, then I've got one located in the morning. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely use those bugles. And really, I use that echo locator lo hearing those bugles and chasing them. Uh, as much as I do glassing elk, like I use both of those tactics to locate bulls, especially during that rut. So 
listening and then you know once I have a bull then it's trying to get eyes on him or trying to figure out where he's headed and um, it's really trying to use my elk knowledge and uh, what I what I typically do is um, elk you don't really get to plan out this calculated methodical stock on them like you would a mule deer I mean every once in a while you get a bull bedded where you can make a calculated play on them. But most of the time, you see an elk in a location, and by the time you get to that location, the elk have moved and changed, and the whole stock has changed. And so basically what I like to do is I like to adapt to the situation I'm given. I like to find elk and then, um, you know, I get over to where the elk are, relocate them, and then adapt to that situation. So, uh uh, a lot of times I'm shadowing the herd, so I'm keeping anywhere from, you know, 100 to 300 yards out. I'm keeping an eye on him. I'm following him either by his bugle or by seeing him or by both, and I'm kind of shadowing this herd, and I'm waiting for my opportunity. Maybe when the bull separates from the cows or maybe I close the distance and they go over a ridge and I hustle to that ridge, and then he's right over the top feeding and I'm able to get a shot or following them to their bedroom, uh, elk travel distances between their feeding feature to their bedding feature. So they love to cover country and a bunch of it, and they love to walk up hills. So a lot of times it's just keeping with them, and they're on the move kind of feeding and grazing as they're going. Uh, but right before they get to their bedding spot, they'll kind of graze around for a little bit, which gives me an opportunity to try to close in. So that's another opportunity I'll use. And in shadowing this herd, sometimes you're just keeping with them, and then you figure out the deep, dark timber that they bedded in, sit on them all day, and then play them in the evening when they come out to that feeding feature. So there's like a bunch of different plays here that you can do, uh, but you have to have the wind right on elk. They've got good noses on them, so... You know, again, it's this higher understanding of the winds. It's a higher understanding of the directionals and how they move through the mountains that you're hunting. And so I'm constantly taking tabs and taking notes on the wind throughout my entire hunt, not just when I'm stalking elk. So I'm paying attention. And so a lot of these uh, directional winds you can get a forecast for, like which direction the wind's going to be blowing from the south, from the north, from the east, from the west. This can factor into my game plan. Uh, they also have that Windy app. It's a red app with a white W, and if you get on that Windy app, it'll project the the winds and how they're moving through your mountains and the speed at which they're going to blow and an hourly reading on them as well. And those um, those directional winds are great for for covering your noise as well as you're closing in on a stock. So I always like an afternoon stock. Uh, as those directionals come up and get a little bit stronger and um, can hide the approach. So if you do get a get an afternoon play on something or an evening play, you usually have some more directional winds. Uh, the other thing to factor in is the, um, the thermals or the thermal winds. So um, I'm sure I've explained it on here a million times, but basically as the sun comes up, it heats the valley floor. As it heats the valley floor, it heats that air around the valley floor. As that air heats up, warm air rises, and it starts to work its way up the mountains, like up drainages and things. It wants to work its way uphill. Those are uphill thermals. So right away in the morning, everything is shaded. Well, the the opposite of that is like in the evening, uh, the mountains start to shade up and start to cool. That, that cool air starts to drop. That's your downhill thermal. And so in the morning right away, 
you know, depending on which way that the hillside is facing that you're hunting, you have a downhill thermal right away in the morning for about an hour, maybe two hours, something like that. Then it starts to change as different things get sunny and start heating up. And really when these winds are changing, uh, they're like the most fickle winds, and so it's really tough to kill a bull with those those mid-morning winds until everything gets heated up and you got those constant uphill thermals. Um, I also like my best chance to kill a bull is in the evening as you get those steady downhill thermals after the mountains get shaded. I love that downhill thermal. It's steady, consistent, and I can count on it. So, you know, really work on understanding these winds and having a higher understanding of how they're moving through your mountain range. So you take them on ridge tops, you take them down in the bottoms of draws, you take them on different facing hillsides, really take notes of what the winds are doing because that'll come into to play when you finally get a stock on a bull. So uh, understand that. And then, um, yeah, so I'm going to shadow these herds, look for my opportunities. I'm definitely reading the mannerisms of these elk as I'm stalking in. If their heads are up and looking around and they're alert, they're looking for danger. If they're feeding or focused on rutting, then I know they haven't picked me off. And um, ungulates, they spot movement far better than your camo pattern, although I do think my camo pattern gives me a major advantage Um, being able to hold still and have these elk look through me or these elk not see me. So I do like wearing camo and I love that. I love that, uh, cryptech pattern, that obscure transitional tends to blend in like in all the different habitats that I hunt. So I do think that gives me advantage, but, uh, what I was stating is that, uh, animals catch movement. So ungulates see movement and what an elk will do is an elk will catch movement in the trees or catch movement. And then once it sees that movement, it'll look in that direction and really hyper focus in. And then once it confirms that movement, then it knows it's danger and it tries to get out of there or escapes or barks at you. And, um, So your job is to see these elk before they see you. And there's so many times when you have to relocate these elk. So you're moving in from a stock. You saw them in on a meadow. Now you're coming to the edge of the meadow and you have to see these elk before they see you. If they see you, the gig's up. Now there is that first initial spot of you where maybe you and an elk see each other at the same time and you freeze. That elk will look in your direction and your job is to hold still. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to freeze from an elk looking at me. And had to hold still for, you know, sometimes five minutes, sometimes 10, 20, 30 minutes I have to hold still and let that elk work off or not confirm its suspicions that I'm a predator. And then that elk will go back to feeding or move off and not bark at me and I'll get my chance to keep moving in on the herd. So you have to be able to recognize when to freeze and... um and when to move and so relocating these elk is so important and you're going to have to do it as you shadow this herd every rise they go over you got to relocate those elk as you come over the top and make sure you don't run into them and so what I like to do is anytime I'm coming over any ridge line exposing new country instead of rushing over the top and then sitting down and glassing everything I take a step and it exposes a little bit more of the country you know below that ridge line and I'll glass everything and then I'll take another step and that'll expose more of that country in front of me over the ridge line and I'll glass that so I really work over these slow and then I'm looking to my left and my right too because like I say these elk are not where you left them so if you're coming over the rise and you're expecting them right in front of you 
all of a sudden they move to the left or there's a random satellite bull to your left and he catches you and barks and blows up the whole deal. So really make sure that you're looking left and right as you're coming over top on these elk relocate these elk and then you just take what they give you like it's important not to stock to failure and so you don't keep stocking until you blow up the herd or until you blow up elk or push it until where you could get busted like you take what they give you and you take what the country and ungulation gives you so the country and ungulation will hide your approach so you can use micro draws and ridge lines you can use timber you can use folds and rises and pay attention to where these elk are and then the move that you can get away with to get to those spots. So as I as I close in, uh, got to find them first. I'm going to take what these elk give me, freeze when I have to freeze, kind of let things develop. And a lot of times it's just getting in range of the cows and then that bull makes a mistake, comes to check those cows or comes to round them up and then gives me a shot. And so uh, really like you know, just to keep the element of surprise and play the game is your best chance. So you don't give yourself away. You don't blow up the elk, but you've got a good wind. And you just keep closing in and say you're at 100 yards. And it's like, well, I'll just wait and let things happen. I really don't, you know, I, I ran out of, of cover. I can't get any closer. I'm just going to wait here. And maybe that bull works into you or maybe the cows work into you or say they're working away. Well, the minute they get over another fold, then I can close to that fold and maybe cut the distance. Or uh, if they get in the timber, then I can close in that timber. And so, you know, I told you I really like hunting them in their feeding feature. But last year, hunting these high-pressure elk, they would get into the timber so early that basically, you know, I was like hunting behind these elk or shadowing the herd through this timber using their bugles to see where that bull is and when you hear that bugle it's like really try to pin down how far in front of you is what feature he's on and and he can also trick you the bull sounds different bugling at you than he does bugling away and bugling away can echo off the canyon walls so be careful of this but as you're chasing that bull It's just like knowing the right speed to go and when to slow down anytime you're exposed or when you think you're getting close to them or when you start seeing sign. And then, you know, there's times when they're moving towards their bedroom where I'm just trying to keep up and, heck, I've been jogging with elk just trying to keep up and see where they're going to disappear to or give myself another chance. So you're really, like, taking what these these elk will give you uh, as far as the stock and as far as the country. And then... Um, you know, be patient when you're waiting for a shot on these elk. So elk are a big target. They have big lungs. We all know that. But elk are the toughest animal on planet Earth. There's more horror stories on elk than any other animal because they're so dang tough. So you have to put a precise shot into them. You know, and it's it's science. You hit the lungs, heart, and liver, and they die. You hit anywhere else, you got maybe a 10% chance to get them. So it's like, you, you really have to focus in these times, and I hold myself, you know, not going to say a higher regard for elk than anything else, but, you know, I just know it takes such a precise shot that I can't just put one in the chest of an elk. Like, I really have to aim and get a good angle on a bull and stick a perfect arrow into him because um, that's what it takes to kill those things. So uh, it's important to not try to force a shot. So anytime there's limbs in the way, it hits those limbs like 99% of the time. It's, um, 
So make sure you're not trying to shoot through that cover. Uh, make sure you're waiting for the right window. The right angle is so important on these elk. So this quartering towards angle is a bad angle on, on elk. There is a frontal shot on elk for sure when they're facing you or like hard quartering towards you. Uh, a frontal shot will kill an elk. You just have such a small spot to hit. It's like the size of a grapefruit. Uh, maybe a little bit bigger like a cantaloupe. But it's like it's not a very big spot to hit. So... You know, if I'm going to take a frontal shot, and I really like broadside or quartering away, and and stalking, I get those opportunities. So that's usually the shot I'm waiting for. Uh, you know, if the bull is super close, like under 20 yards, and I can put a precise arrow in the front of them, then I have confidence to do that and that it's going to kill that bull. But for the most part, I'm waiting for a broadside or quartered away uh, to really put that arrow through the vitals and get a good shot on that bull. It's important, like... You will have a blood trail on elk. They very rarely fall within sight. So as soon as you run an arrow into them, it's so important to pick up details here. So where were you standing when you took the shot? Where was the elk standing? Where is the last place you saw that elk run? Where? What did you hear? Did you hear stick, stick snapping? Like just to get a direction on this bull, the last place you saw him, where he's headed to. Like pay attention to these details as this is really going to pay dividends later. Make sure to stick a stick in the ground. Uh, like where you shot from so you can return back to that spot the exact spot the bull was standing and uh, give these bulls time time to expire and die um, so you know give them that good 45 minutes even on a perfect shot and if it's a less than perfect shot need to give it more time if it's a liver shot it needs to be a few hours if it's a gut shot yeah it needs to be six hours or you know you can't let a bull uh, rot like you got to get after them but I tell you a lot of these gut shot bulls are not going to be recovered because these bulls can go so dang far with the gut shot and not much blood um, so it's important to give them time and then you know you just want to go CSI the 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 hit of that bull so you remembered where the bull was the last place you saw him you can get on tracks it's important to not step on the tracks and to mark that blood as you go like I like to just stick a little stick in the ground and sometimes these blood trails you can walk right behind them. A lot of times you're going to have to return to last blood and figure out where the bull went and um, just try to unravel the blood trail. The blood trail ultimately leads to the dead bull. The minute you have to leave the blood trail and you have to start gritting the area, like they can be found that way, but uh, your chances go way down are recovering that bull. So the best is always to follow that blood trail up. Uh, so nice when you get an exit on those bulls and get a good blood trail um, entrance and exit and those bulls don't make it too far. Um, bulls can go uphill with a bad hit, like not a bad hit, I mean a good hit where that bull's going to die. They can go uphill, so uh, don't be afraid to follow that thing uphill. And uh, they can go a ways, even with a lethal shot. They can go 300 yards or, or further. So uh, make sure you're taking up that blood trail and figuring out uh, where that, that bull went. Uh, a couple random tips is like um, always pay attention to the horns. Like the nice thing about those elk is they've got four foot of antlers on top of their head. So you can kind of read his mood and mannerisms and which way he's looking to not give yourself away just by the which way the the antlers are facing. And that'll also dictate like when you come over the hill. It's like always nice to be able to draw on these elk when they're not looking at you. Like to keep that element of surprise. They're not looking at you. Finally got the bull broadside. Uh, he looks at you and then looks back to his cows and then drawing right when he looks back to his cows but it doesn't always happen that way it's like there is a time and a place where you've been stalking these elk 
uh, you, you're all in, you get close, and, and an elk picks you off. And so now this cow's looking at you, so you know to freeze, but that bull is broadside and in range, and you know this scenario is going to blow up, like maybe there's three or four cows looking at you, the gig's up. In this instance, it's like important not to make any big movements. So you can't draw your bow and stand up, or you can't draw your bow and come around the tree. Like it's all slow movements. Uh, so if I'm if I'm kneeled, like I'm gonna try to get my bow up as slowly as possible and try to bend my limbs back as slowly as possible to try to get a shot on this bull if the gig's up. And a lot of times they'll hang out and wait for it, and uh, a lot of times they won't. Um, the other thing you can do is, um, uh, if the, the bull tends to, if the bull spooks right as you're getting drawn, like a lot of times I'll use a mouth cow call to stop a bull. Say if he's walking and I get to full draw, I've got a range on him, everything, then I'll use a cow call to stop him. And I just do this with my voice and not a read as it's so tough in the heat of adrenaline to try to blow your call right. So just give him one of these, just a... So just going to give them a couple cow calls and try to stop them. Uh, the other thing that's like a last-ditch effort is um, uh, is to try to get them to, um, to stop is like when they spook. Uh, it's like if they spook, uh, a cow call just isn't going to work. It's like a, a cow call just makes them run harder when they're spooked. And so uh, what I try to do is I try to bark at them. Um, when they're going away, like say I, I, the, the bulls watching me, sees me, I try to get drawn right as I'm trying to get drawn. Uh, he spooks, I'll give him a yo. So it's like an elk bark, just a yo and try to stop that bull. So that, um, that bark, uh, is like a warning call and you're like telling that elk to identify himself. And so a lot of times they'll stop and you'll get a shot, um, even after they spook. So again, it's just give them the yo. And um, sometimes that works, and and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they spook hard enough, but that's kind of your last-ditch effort uh, to try to get a shot on that bull, uh, is to try to bark at right at them and try to get them to stop that way. So it's um it's super thrilling way to hunt them. You really get to target these herd bulls, and um you know they. They they make themselves more susceptible, and the longer you can play the game, just the the more chance you have to catch that bull putting himself in a bad spot where then you can capitalize. And so there's just no funner hunting to me. And I still, like, it's really fun to get the interaction of elk calling back and forth, and there's probably no more thrilling way to kill an elk than to call one in and like like challenge a bull to a fight and have him come in looking for a fight just raging and bugling and you can hear the emotions and those bugles are so loud so it's a super effective way to hunt them i just find these high pressure elk and targeting these herd bulls i have better luck just keeping quiet letting the elk be the elk i keep the element of surprise and then i make moves on them and there's a lot of times i'll hunt the same bull for two three days and he still doesn't know i'm hunting him so like I can really continue to play the game and eventually this bull just puts himself in a bad spot or a good spot for me and I'm able to close in and it doesn't work every time. It's it's like 
It's like calling these things, these elk instincts are so good and, you know, you have to beat the entire herd. Like a lot of times they have a lot of cows and so you're not just trying to beat the bull elk that's rutting like crazy. You're also trying to to beat the 20 or 30 cows that he has there too and that's that's kind of the challenge of it. And and to be honest, like I, I'm, I'm going to fail too multiple times in a season. Like I usually don't kill the first bull that I chase. You know, I think last year... I had one bull I chased for a couple days, and then I had, you know, I probably had three, four, five encounters with bulls before I finally arrowed one. So it's not just like I'm killing every bull that I'm going after. And it's the same thing with calling is you're not going to call in every bull you're after. And so, like, I understand the game and the odds, and, you know, there's just a right time and place to stalk. And if I catch a bull in the right spot, I got a good chance to kill him. Uh, but a lot of times I'm just playing the game looking for that right chance or, you know, trying to get myself into elk in close to try to make those moves to to be able to arrow a bull. So, um, man, I mean, that's that's kind of how I attack my elk season. And, and I hunt them through all different seasons. So early season, uh, you can catch these bulls by themselves. Like Sam Davis has tremendous success hunting this early season. You also get the beginning phases of the rut where these bulls are starting to look for cows. They'll come into a cow call better. A lot of times I'll catch these bulls by themselves, which if I can catch a bull by himself, I got a good chance to kill him because I don't have to beat all those eyes or beat all those cows. And so uh, the early season is a great time to find bulls by themselves, maybe even in bachelor herds or um, just starting to rut and starting to gather up cows. So it's a good chance to kill a bull. I love the peak rut days. Um, I love that these bulls are bugling a lot. I can echo locate them. I can listen in canyons. I can follow bugles and chase bugles. Uh, I love that they're preoccupied chasing cows. These big bulls make mistakes during the rut. So it's one of my favorite times of the year to hunt. So I pretty much get going. Those rut hunts like start like around September 10th. Although I found good rutting action around September 5th and earlier too. Uh, but usually around September 10th, uh, peak rut seems to really be around the I don't know, 15th to 25th or 15th to 23rd around here. And it changes everywhere. Sometimes I see great rutting action prior to that and great rutting action after. And then, um, yeah, as it gets later into the season, uh, I love hunting October in Montana. And the deal with October is uh, all the people leave. So all the hunting pressure is right during the, the middle of the rut. And so as it gets into October, you have this wane in hunting pressure, but the bull still tend to bugle and rut so uh, they get in bigger groups and you know I always thought it was second cycle estrus cows talking to um see I was talking to um oh my gosh Jason Phillips sorry uh Jason Phillips talks to a bunch of biologists and he was saying that these cows don't go into a second cycle estrus that they all cycle it around the same time the 15th to the 23rd or 25th or something he was saying these dates hold true all the way from northern United States to southern and that's when the elk rut he was saying that later rut action is usually calves or first-year elk that were born late that then come into estrus late so you know I'm not sure what exactly like I believe because I've seen you know I've seen cows in estrus different than those dates or at least 
at least my own personal experience in bro science, um, I just know that the the rut ebbs and flows, and so, you know, it can be the 20th of September, and I can see no elk rutting because no cows are in estrus, but it can be the 5th of September, and all of a sudden, every bull in the woods is going nuts because there's a cow in estrus, and so, you know, I'm not sure, um, not that that information's wrong, I just heard that and then, um, but my personal experience is that the rut ebbs and the flows, and and as I get into October, these bulls they still rut. They get in big groups, and they find like whether it's second cycle estrus, whether it's the same cycle estrus, just late cows, or whether it's late born calves, or whatever it is. There's still cows going into estrus, or these bulls will still go nuts in October, and they're usually in bigger groups, so they're kind of tough to play on. Uh, but I just noticed there's still rutting action all the way into the 15th of October when our season closes. I've been into crazy rutting action the last day of the season. So uh, I, I like hunting these October dates as well. And where I think this spot and stock could really be advantageous is like some of these Arizona late season hunts. So these Arizona late season hunts, you can draw some of those premium units down there and hunt them during November. And so you know, it's a tougher time to hunt bulls as they're put away after the rut. They're hanging in bachelor groups. But if you can glass and you can spot and stock, you got a good chance to kill a good bull down there. And there's some guys that are definitely doing it. And so, you know, that's a good opportunity. If you hone these spot and stock skills, you, you can hunt elk all the way through October and November in different places and draw some really good tags and get some opportunities. I think um, my buddy Travis Nowatney, which I'm going to get back on the podcast, um, he also, uh, he has a late season this year, I believe in Utah, he's got a late season tag. So, uh, you can really use those spot and stock skills there, but man, there's nothing funner than hunting elk. And even though the calling experience is really thrilling, you still get to take part in the rut. You can still go out and hear 200, 300 bugles a night. And you're chasing these bulls and finding these bulls and seeing them, you know, under this, this natural behavior. So it's just, um, it's a really fun way to pursue these bulls. And even if you don't turn into a all or none spot and stock guy, there is a time and a place to spot and stock elk. So maybe you come you, you come across that 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 one great opportunity where that bull is, is um you know gives himself away for a spot and stock where he's right over a ridge or he's in a good spot. Like there's no need to pull out the calls there where you can just sneak up to that ridge, pop over the top and shoot that bull and he has no idea you're there. So you can just take these tactics, you can apply them to calling as well. And then, um, you know, you can also just see that bull in the right circumstance and know that it's right to spot and stock. So, um, man, it'd be fun. Can't wait to cut these legs loose and chase elk. I got a bunch of time dedicated to elk this season. And, um, yeah, I'm just super excited to chase them and, um, set my goals in another good six point and, uh, go challenge myself in the mountain. So, um, all right, guys, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Thanks a bunch for, um, for listening to the podcast. Thanks a bunch for support on social media. Uh, the iTunes reviews really help. And then go check out that other podcast, uh, Dan Picard and I, there are consistently awesome episodes on there uh, we're just pouring our heart and soul they're just so information packed that you might find yourself listening to them multiple times um, uh, episode eight will come out this week episode seven is up now being clutch stories of dan and i's best bulls and some of our elk tactics we use and you can hear some more calling tactics for dan and winnie that uses calls and winnie uses spot and stock 
uh, just a great conversation with him. I'm really proud of how that's coming out. So again, help me out with that one so we can keep this podcast going. Um, uh, share it on social media if you enjoy the episode. And then the reviews on iTunes really help with the algorithm and support. So um, yeah, just really appreciate you guys. Um, this podcast is um, more than I could hope for. And um It's just so enjoyable to be able to share my experiences with you guys and then um, to build this, uh, you know, really build this community of guys that are hardcore guys. And like the information is here on this podcast to become better and to become consistently successful. But it's up to you putting in the work and dedicating yourself to it. And, and again, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it takes years of dedication, but eventually uh, you're just able to improve on those skill sets and able to find consistent success. And really, you know, it's about the adventure of being able to go to the wildest places in the lower 48 and go challenge ourselves mentally and physically. And, um, you know, killing a good bowl is definitely a bonus or icing on the cake. But uh, I can tell you I'll be looking pretty hard for that icing this year. So, uh, all right, guys, that's a wrap. I'll check in with you next week.